Hi everyone and welcome to Franchise Interviews where for over 13 years now we've been asking the entrepreneurs one one. I'm your host Marty McDermott, I'm the president of Franchise Interviews and we have a great show today. Well, several years ago, one of my peers, Elsie Fennard, introduced me to motivational speaker Steve Pavlina. And Steve produced a number of great podcasts available to the public that are uncopyrighted on motivation, entrepreneurship, and life balance. For example, which patterns help us grow faster and squeeze more juice out of life? Which patterns slow us down or cause stagnation? Steve answered these questions in his book, Personal Development for Smart People, published by Hay House in 2008. And by listening to Steve, it's a great way to start the new year. So today's show gives you a taste of Steve Plavina and prepares you for a wonderful 2020. And let's go right into the podcast with Steve Pavlina. Love Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. This is Marty McDermott, the president of Franchise Interviews. And I can't start today's show without talking about the ISO 10002. You know, some people just love to complain. But companies have a responsibility to care. The International Organization for Standardization, ISO, has revised ISO 10002, the standard for complaint handling. This document enables organizations to foster a customer-focused environment, open the feedback, heightening their customer satisfaction. You can get the ISO 10002 standard from the American National Standards Institute, ANSI, the U.S. member body of ISO. Visit ANSI.org forward slash complaint to learn more. That's ansi.org forward slash complain to learn more. StevePavlina.com, Personal Development for Smart People, podcast number one for Friday, September 2nd, 2005. Since this is my first podcast, I think what I'll do is begin with an explanation of what I mean by the phrase personal development for smart people. I'm sure you've had at least some experience with these self-proclaimed self-help gurus that make these sweeping promises that you'll have instant success and health and wealth and happiness in, across all different areas of your life as soon as you buy whatever it is they're selling. And of course, if you do so, you find that you get a bunch of recycled platitudes and there's no real substance to the message. And in the long run, all you end up doing is lining their pockets, but not really making any major life changes for yourself. If you're listening to this podcast, I imagine that you must be a fairly intelligent person. So I'm not going to insult your intelligence by promising you some fast and easy solutions to all your problems. See, the reality of personal development, when it actually works, just isn't like that at all. It's not like the quick, quick fix. It's more of a slow, plodding, methodical process. And it usually takes a tremendous amount of time and hard work. And at times, the process can even be painful. But in the long run, over a period of years, intelligently pursuing your own personal growth does pay off. Let me tell you a personal story that may help illustrate what personal development is. Let's go back to January 27, 1991. Super Bowl Sunday. And on this particular Sunday, while almost everyone else was watching the Super Bowl, I was sitting in a jail cell. I had just been arrested for felony grand theft, and I already had a prior conviction for shoplifting the year before. I was 19 years old. Now, if you've never been to jail, and hopefully you haven't, you should know that it's extremely boring. 
And since I had nothing else to do for the three days I was in jail at that time, I sat there and thought long and hard about my life. Which, as you can probably imagine from the fact that I was in jail, was a bit of a mess. And sometime during those three days, at some point, I had what to me was a very powerful realization. I realized, finally, that I was the one who put myself in that cell. That no one else had done it to me. Not the security guard who caught me. Not the officer who arrested me. Not society at large. I wasn't even a victim of my own bad habits. I did it to myself. And that sense of responsibility finally came crashing down on me. No one was coming to save me. If anything in my life was going to change, the impetus for that change was going to have to come from me. How my life turned out from that point onwards was entirely up to me. But there was no way that 19-year-old kid could fix his whole life overnight. For starters, he wasn't very emotionally stable. At different times, he was depressed, angry, frustrated, alone, sometimes even numb. He was unfocused, he was undisciplined, he was extremely dishonest, and worst of all, he was lazy. But the one thing he had going for him was that he finally reached the level of awareness where he could see that the path he was on was eventually going to destroy him if he didn't do something about it. But to actually correct the problems he faced and to get his life on track seemed untenable. It seemed beyond his abilities. He didn't have the discipline or the integrity or the focus or the persistence to make those kinds of sweeping changes. He couldn't even get himself out of bed before noon. Plus, at the time, he was totally addicted to shoplifting. He'd often do it several times per day. So how on earth could he expect to fix everything? And he didn't believe he could do it. He knew what he needed to do, but he didn't think he could do it. He wasn't strong enough. And he was right in thinking that. He wasn't strong enough. But when he finally surrendered to that sense that he wasn't strong enough at the time, that's when another realization hit him. Maybe there was a way he could somehow, someday, become strong enough. If he couldn't lift the weight in front of him, maybe he could train himself to the point where he could eventually lift it. He could grow. At the very least, he could grow up. And that gave him a sense of hope because he felt that working on himself was at least something he could control. Even though his external reality seemed to be spiraling out of control. So in that moment, he decided to make personal growth his number one priority in life, which included figuring out exactly how he needed to grow. So what did he actually do? First, he cut off all ties to the circle of people that were reinforcing his old identity. He moved to another city, and he gradually made new friends. And what this did is it helped interrupt the patterns that led to his destructive behavior and that reinforced it. And he successfully kept himself out of jail from that point onwards. And that was a big accomplishment for him. Then he went to work on his knowledge and skills. 
He bought books and audio programs, and eventually he started attending seminars. He went to work on his emotions. He gradually overcame his negativity, his negative attitude, his sarcasm. And he started building a positive and enthusiastic attitude for himself, which was a huge shift for him. He went to work on his focus, and he started consciously setting goals and then working to achieve them. What a concept. He went to work on his self-discipline, which allowed him to learn to trust himself and then to take on bigger and bigger goals. He went to work on his own beliefs about reality, and he gradually formed a new sense of his own spirituality that was very empowering for him, one that was uniquely his own. He went to work on his character, on his integrity, and on a sense of honor until he became a man who could take a long, hard look at himself in the mirror without wanting to turn away. He went to work on his time management skills, which allowed him to go to college and graduate with two degrees in three semesters by taking triple the normal course load. He went to work on his relationships, eventually attracting a wonderful woman into his life who not only became his wife, but also his best friend. He went to work on his courage, facing down his deepest fears. He started his own computer games business, and after much difficulty, after a lot of hard work, he was able to make it successful. He went to work on his physical energy, and he began exercising regularly. He ran a marathon. He trained in Taekwondo. He became a vegetarian and then a vegan, permanently eliminating all animal products from his diet. He went to work on his generosity, and he started writing and speaking and volunteering to help others with their own personal growth, all for free. He went to work on his vision of his life. He took the time to consciously define a purpose for his life and over time to make that purpose a part of his daily reality, a part of his everyday life. So over a period of a decade and a half, 15 years, that 19-year-old kid was able to completely transform every part of his life. He tore it down, he redesigned it, and he rebuilt it from scratch by conscious choice. How much time do you think that took? How much time did he work directly on his own personal growth during those 15 years? Did it involve just reading a book and having an instant quick fix solution that worked? Not remotely. A best guess would probably be about 10,000 hours. That's equivalent to five years of 40-hour weeks. And thanks to that one committed decision that he made and all the hard work he did to follow through on it, the person that I am today, that I am right now, owes him my very existence. I exist because of him. Because of him, I get up every morning at 5 a.m. wide awake and full of energy. Because of him, I feel confident and enthusiastic about my life. Because of him, I have the courage to go after my dreams without being sidetracked by fear. Because of him, I have a wonderful wife and kids. Because of him, I now spend my time doing the most fulfilling and purposeful work I can possibly imagine for myself. Because of him, I'm in a position of being able to make a positive contribution to the world. Because of him, I can honestly say I'm truly happy. I'm truly happy because he made a decision and paid the price. 
I owe everything I am to that scared, lazy, dishonest, terribly confused young man to that one intelligent decision that he made on January 27, 1991. The decision to grow. The decision to grow. And words cannot express the overwhelming gratitude I feel towards him every day for making that decision. Isn't that amazing that all of these positive results can be traced back to a single decision made by a 19-year-old kid sitting in a jail cell being charged with a felony. Can you imagine what that same kind of decision could do for you? Deciding to grow, to improve yourself, to become a better, stronger, more capable person tomorrow than you are today. I'm not saying you need to drop everything in your life and center your entire life around the pursuit of personal growth. What I am suggesting is that you can commit to begin weaving a thread of personal growth into your everyday life, starting right now. And you know what? Even if you do that, it's unlikely that your life is going to change much in the short term. Even after six months or a year, things may not be that much different for you than they are today. But fast forward five years, ten years, fifteen years, and you know, over that kind of time, even small changes will begin to make a real difference. It's like the concept of compound interest, where each new change builds on the ones before it. I'm not going to tell you that personal growth is going to be fast and easy. Quite the contrary, in fact. It's long, it's hard, and much of the time it's painful. It will stretch you to your limits. It will stretch you beyond your limits. And you'll experience some failure. But if you accept that this is just how it's going to be, and you commit to doing it anyway, then you've already won. You've already won. Just like that 19-year-old kid did. Understand that one of the most intelligent decisions you can possibly make, both for your own good and for the good of everyone else around you, is to grow. To grow. To become the best human being you're capable of becoming, no matter how difficult it is or how long it takes. If it takes 15 years, it takes 15 years. Now, I've certainly not reached the pinnacle of human development. Just ask my wife and she'll be happy to tell you. As human beings, we're never done growing. It's a lifelong process. And for me, it's also a lifelong commitment. You see, my purpose in life, the very reason that I've defined for my own existence, is to consciously and courageously pursue personal growth and to actively support other people who want to grow as well. For me, this is not just a career. It's who I've become. It's what I'm here to do. And so I invite you to join me on this journey. And online at the stevepavlina.com website, you'll find lots of free resources. There are over 200 articles that take a deep look at all different aspects of personal development. And this is only going to, to increase over time. With the blog entry that accompanies this podcast, I'll add some links to help you get started so you hopefully won't be overwhelmed. Whatever figurative jail cell you find yourself in right now, realize that you're the one who put yourself there. You put yourself there. And ultimately, you're the one who's going to have to work yourself out of it. No one's coming to save you, including me. But I am here to help you if you want to take advantage of that. I know that no matter what your life looks like right now, within you is the potential for something much greater. 
But I also know that you aren't going to tap that potential with a fast and easy quick fix. It's going to take a lot of hard work and it's going to take a lot of time. But despite how hard it may be, it will be worth it. So if you only remember one idea from this podcast, then just remember this one word. Grow. Grow. Until next time, live consciously. StevePedlina.com Personal Development for Smart People, podcast number two for Friday, September 16th, 2005. In today's program, we're going to explore the subject of truth, and specifically how to understand and accept the reality of your life circumstances as they are right now. Let's begin with a simple story. When I was a child, my parents liked to pretend, like many other parents, that Santa Claus would bring us presents at Christmas. So when my siblings and I would wake up on Christmas morning, there would be a bunch of presents from supposedly Santa Claus sitting in front of the fireplace. Well, it wasn't long before my younger sister and I figured out that there really was no Santa Claus and that our parents were the ones putting those gifts out. But of course, when we confronted our parents about it, they denied everything and tried to maintain the illusion that Santa Claus existed. My sister and I would try to catch them putting out the presents, but we'd always oversleep. Well, one Christmas morning, I happened to wake up early, and so I went and got my sister up, and we walked out into the living room. I was probably about eight years old at the time, and my sister was six. But once again, we saw we were too late. It was totally dark in the room, probably around 5 a.m., but we could see that the presents from Santa Claus were already sitting in front of the fireplace. Just seconds later, though, our mother came around the corner, carrying a couple more gifts to lay out. And when she saw my sister and me moving around in the dark, she was so startled she almost had a heart attack. But my sister and I finally had proved to her that we knew that she was the one pretending to be Santa Claus. Now, I suppose you think I'm going to tell you that the moral of the story is not to spoil the surprise, but it's actually quite the opposite. See, my sister and I already knew the truth about Santa Claus, so we weren't spoiling anything for ourselves. But we thought our parents were in denial about the whole thing, and so we took steps to prove to them that they weren't fooling us. Now, how does this apply to your life? Well, in every area of your life, you have the option of either facing the truth willingly or living in denial of the truth. And when you linger in a state of denial or ignorance, you risk having the truth forced upon you. Your external world will eventually prove you wrong. In my mom's case, the truth was forced upon her, the truth that she wasn't successfully fooling us kids into believing that there was a Santa Claus by my sister and me. Which parts of your life could benefit from a bit more truth? For example, is it your health, your relationships, your career, your financial situation? Is there any part of your life where you sense you've been avoiding facing the complete truth? What part of your life do you feel hesitant or fearful to take a deep, long look into? Another way to think about this is to ask yourself, where in your life do you experience the greatest degree of procrastination? What are you putting off? What are you avoiding looking at? Whenever you find fear, you'll find an unwillingness to face the truth. Why? Usually, it's because some part of you doesn't really want to know the truth. I'm not saying that ignorance is bliss, but sometimes you might find ignorance more attractive than completely accepting reality. Because at least if you're ignorant, you have the option of giving yourself the benefit of the doubt. You can take some comfort in the possibility that things might not be as bad as you suspect they, they are. So if you don't face the truth, you can continue imagining this full range of possibilities. But if you get all the facts, then most likely that range is going to be significantly narrowed, right? Unfortunately, as we know, ignorance will often make the problem worse. You can't solve the most difficult problems of your life until you fully understand them. 
Or as Albert Einstein said, the significant problems we have cannot be solved at the same level of thinking with which we created them. But in order to move to a higher level of thinking, you first have to understand the situation you're actually in. And that means dragging the whole messy thing out into light and taking a long look at it and eventually confronting the truth of the matter. Many people avoid facing and accepting the truth because they feel that even if they know the truth, they still can't do anything about it. So maybe it's better just not to know. But of course, we know that that's a mistake. In the long run, facing the truth is empowering. When you move past your denial and ignorance, that empowers you to take action. Fuzzy thinking is very demotivating. Not knowing the truth is demotivating. But clarity, even in the face of circumstances you'd rather avoid thinking about, clarity has a way of providing its own motivation. So first you have to face the truth. Then once you've done that, you'll be in a much better position to figure out what to do about it. But keep these two steps separate. When you're looking to face the truth of your situation, don't worry about how you'll handle it afterwards. Facing the truth should never be conditional upon your knowing how to handle each contingency in advance. As an example, for many years I worked as a computer game developer. I got started in that field when I was 22 years old. But after working in that industry for more than a decade, I started to see that the work wasn't as fulfilling to me as it once was. I was entertaining people, of course, but I began to feel that I'd be better suited to doing something else. So in my early 30s, I knew I didn't want to devote my entire working life to developing entertainment software. In fact, I knew most of all, I really wanted to work in the field of personal development. But when I thought about that, I immediately started thinking, how can I possibly manage such a big transition? These are completely different lines of work. I was deeply involved in running an independent game publishing company. So because I couldn't see a way to make it work in advance, of course I sank back down into a state of denial. I tried to convince myself that my current line of work was just fine and that I'd be best off sticking to my, my current plans. I told myself, well, someday I'll be in a position where transitioning will be easier. But really, I was avoiding facing my feelings and just kind of lowering my awareness to sink back into the work that I was already doing. But really, I was just avoiding facing my true feelings and doing my best to just keep on working as an excuse to avoid thinking about it. But I was making the classic mistake of avoiding facing the whole truth of the matter and living in, in denial of the truth because I didn't see that I could actually do anything about it. Eventually, I realized that this was the wrong way to go about things. I was actually lowering my awareness by pretending that everything was okay. So I finally admitted to myself that it was not okay. I was in the wrong line of work for me. And even if I couldn't see a way to transition, that still didn't change the fact that I was in the wrong line of work for me. So I actually put myself in a situation where I knew that my current line of work was wrong for me, but I still didn't see how to change it, at least not as quickly as I felt was necessary. I actually had to say to myself, this is wrong for me, but at least for now, I don't really have a choice except to keep on doing it. And that was very strange. I think we have a natural tendency to avoid saying to ourselves, this situation is wrong for me, and then to remain in it for a while because we don't see any alternative. Imagine a smoker saying, yes, I know that smoking is wrong for me, I know it's killing me, but at least for now I don't see a way to successfully quit, so I'm going to keep doing it. Or imagine someone in a dead-end relationship acknowledging that the relationship needs to end, but that they don't see a way to break it off yet. 
what do you usually get in those circumstances? You usually get denial, right? People will say, no, smoking is okay. It's not killing me. Or I'm not that addicted. Or if they're in a relationship, they're saying, well, the relationship's not that bad. It's rare that people will acknowledge the truth and then continue doing what's wrong for them if they acknowledge that the situation is wrong for them. It's rare that people will acknowledge the truth that the situation is wrong for them and then continue on in it because they don't yet see a way out. Now, even though that might seem to be a position of powerlessness and weakness, it's actually a much better position to be in than the state of denial or ignorance. You see, once you start accepting the truth, even if you don't like what you see, it helps you become much more clear-headed. You gain access to mental resources you never knew you had. You're finally thinking clearly. So it's okay to acknowledge your weaknesses and yet to continue succumbing to them. Just say to yourself, I know this is wrong for me, but right now I lack the strength or the knowledge or the resources to change. Then you can direct your energy on the intention to eventually find the strength to make the changes you need to make, whatever they may be. So in the case of my transition away from the gaming industry, as soon as I admitted the truth of the situation to myself, I felt first as if a heavy weight had been lifted, and then I began thinking very clearly. I would continue doing the necessary work I had to do, while all the while I was still clear that I was going to have to find a way to start doing something completely different. So I was able to start saying no to the things I needed to say no to, and that freed up extra time and resources, especially mental resources and energy, to start saying yes to the things I wanted to transition to. And it was only a matter of a few months after gaining this level of clarity that I was able to envision a way to make it happen. And for almost a year now, I've been working full-time in my new career. And without a doubt, this has been the best year of my life by far. By far. And it started with facing and accepting the truth of my situation even when it seemed easier not to. So stop pretending. Don't pretend you like a job that you actually dislike. Don't pretend you're happy in an unfulfilling relationship. Don't pretend that your health is good when it isn't. If you want things to be better, you have to come clean with yourself and start accepting the truth. Nothing's going to change until you do that first. But once you surrender to what is, to what the truth of the matter is, you can finally begin to create what you want. Truth has to come first, though. When you accept the whole truth of whatever situation you find yourself in, you'll then be in a position to make better decisions because they'll be based on reality instead of on wishful thinking or on denial or on ignorance. And surrendering to the truth will also help you manifest the motivation, the energy, the ideas, and the resources that you'll need to act on that truth because you'll no longer be wasting so much energy maintaining an illusion. So let me give you two methods that you can use to help you start facing the truth in your life. The first is a simple writing exercise. I do this one in my journal, but if you don't keep a journal, you can just do it with pen and paper, or you can type it up on a computer. So here's how it works. Go over each area of your life, and in a moment I'll give you a list of areas to consider, and simply write a paragraph about each one. You want to answer the question, how am I doing in this particular area of my life right now? For example, you'd write a paragraph to answer the question, how am I doing financially right now? You'd write another paragraph to answer the question, how am I doing physically right now? And so on. You don't have to be particularly structured or formal about this. Just write whatever comes to your mind. 
Now, after you've written each paragraph, the second thing you do is give that area of your life a numerical rating on a scale of 1 to 10. Well, the 1 meaning that this area is down in the dumps and couldn't get much worse. And a 10 meaning that your results in this area are about as good as you can possibly imagine. So if you're rating your financial situation, for instance, a 1 would mean you're either broke or heavily in debt or you have very little income. And a 10 might mean that you've achieved financial independence. So once you've written your paragraphs and rated each area of your life, you'll have a nice snapshot of how you're doing. You'll gain some clarity as to which parts of your life are going well and which ones are lagging behind. And this will help you decide where you need to invest more time and energy versus those areas you can probably let slide for a while. Let me give you a list now of a dozen different areas of your life for you to consider. And for your convenience, I'll also provide this list on the blog entry that accompanies this podcast. You might even think about how you'd rate these areas on a scale of 1 to 10 right now as you listen to them. So here they are. Number one is your work. That's your career, your job, or your business. Number two is financial. Your income, savings, investments, assets, and debt if you have any. Number three is your relationship, which means whatever intimate relationship you happen to have or want to have. In my case, this means my marriage. Number four is your home and family, your home life and your relationships with other family members. Number five is your physical health. That's your diet, exercise habits, staying free of disease, and especially your overall energy level. Number six is mental. That's your knowledge, education, talents, and skills. Are you learning new ideas and developing your talents? Number seven is social. Your friends, your social experiences, networking with other people, belonging to clubs and organizations. Number eight is emotional. How do you generally feel about your life? Are you feeling positive and optimistic or negative and pessimistic? Are you paying enough attention to the warning signs of negative emotions? Number nine is spiritual. That's your religious beliefs and your philosophy of life, which would include your sense of purpose and your overall level of clarity as to your existence and your place in the universe. Number 10 is your character. How strong is your sense of integrity, your honesty, your courage, your compassion, your sense of honor, your level of self-discipline? Number 11 is your contribution. Are you giving something of value to the world? Do you feel you're making a difference with your life? Number 12 is fun and adventure. Are you enjoying your life? Are you experiencing what you want to experience? Now this is my own personal list that I've been tweaking for many years, but feel free to personalize it to suit your own needs. Some people prefer a much shorter list, such as thinking in terms of just body, mind, heart, and spirit. Use whatever works best for you. I find it very helpful to go through this process about once every quarter, so just four times a year, that's all. I find that it gives me a great deal of clarity in thinking about where I want to focus my energy for the next quarter. And I think you'll find it very beneficial as well, even if you just do it once. Now, the second way to bring more truth into your life is to get feedback from other people. For example, ask a friend you trust for his or her opinion on the status of your marriage. Or better yet, ask your spouse directly how your marriage is going. Ask your children how they think you're doing as a parent. When I ask my five-year-old daughter, Emily, how do you think I could be a better daddy for you? Her answers are often amusing, but they're also very enlightening. 
Ask your boss or a coworker for their opinion on your job performance or your future career possibilities. Ask them what they think you, that your key strengths and weaknesses are. You can also consult with professionals like a financial advisor or a doctor if you want to take a deeper look in specific areas like your long-term financial situation or your health. When you consult with other people, you can also ask their advice in addition to their feedback. One of the best questions that you can ask is, what would you do if you were me? And that's in regards to addressing some particular part of your life. So you might ask a close friend, what would you do if you were in the same financial situation as me? Or what would you do if you were in the same kind of relationship as me? Now, it may take some courage to ask these questions, but this can help you cut straight to the heart of the matter and begin facing the truth that you might otherwise have been avoiding. And most people are flattered when you ask for their advice, especially if they can tell that you're genuinely interested in hearing their opinion. Other people are able to see things in us that we can't see clearly for ourselves. I've often seen this pattern when doing public speaking. When I receive feedback on a speech from other speakers, for example, they can point out things I was doing that I was totally oblivious to, like mindlessly picking up a pen from the lectern and twiddling it while I spoke. So take advantage of these two methods, the writing exercise and requesting feedback from other people. They'll help you raise your awareness of your blind spots so then you can decide what you want to do about them. See, facing the truth raises your awareness. Running from the truth lowers your awareness. One of the bravest things you can do, and one thing that will help you tremendously in your own personal growth, is simply to begin with facing the truth of your life as it is right now. Just accept the reality of where you are right now. I'd like to end this podcast with another Christmas story. In addition to pretending to be Santa Claus... My mother would also do her regular Christmas shopping, and she'd usually have it done well in advance of December 25th. we typically set up the Christmas tree the weekend after Thanksgiving, and then my mom would wrap her gifts for the family and set them under the tree. But as a child, I found it rather torturous to see these gifts just lying there for several weeks before I could open any of them. So one year when I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, I got the idea to open up my gifts in advance. So when no one was around... I'd grab a gift from under the tree, sneak off to my room with it, and use a pocket knife to cut the tape and open it very carefully. Then, after I saw what the gift was, I'd reseal the wrapping paper with new tape, and then I'd return to the gift to its previous location under the tree. Then I'd repeat that, and a few, and a few days later, I'd know what all my gifts were. Needless to say, patience has never been one of my strong points. Now, you might be thinking this would spoil the surprise, but that actually wasn't the case at all. I just had my surprise sooner rather than later. And that made the next month, waiting for Christmas, even better because I could anticipate the gifts I was actually going to receive. I didn't have to rely on hope or guesswork because I knew the truth. And because I like knowing the truth in advance, I continued doing this sneaky habit for a few more years before I eventually grew out of it. I think at some point my dad figured out what I was doing because one time when I was a teenager, he gave me a Christmas gift wrapped in barbed wire. I'm not kidding. I'll tell you, my mom wasn't too happy about that. But I was able to open the gift with a pair of wire cutters. However, I had to wait until Christmas to open it because there was no way to rewrap the gift and make it look like it had never been pre-opened. Don't try this with your own children, though, okay? My family was a little unusual sometimes. So the lesson I got from this story was that the sooner you learn the truth, the more prepared you'll be to deal with the realities of your situation. Now, you may not w want to go sneaking a peek at your gifts like I did when I was a kid, but you should sneak a peek at the different parts of your life now and then and see how you're progressing. 
Don't just leave them sitting under the proverbial tree and never open them, even if you think you might not like what you find. While you might see some things you don't particularly like when you do this, you might also discover some of those genuine gifts that were just waiting to be noticed and appreciated. So until next time, live consciously. StevePavlina.com, Personal Development for Smart People, podcast number three for Friday, September 23, 2005. Today, I'd like to discuss with you the topic of consulting your intuition and accessing information stored in your subconscious mind. I'm sure at some point you've heard about the difference between your conscious mind and your subconscious mind. Your conscious mind is simply the thinking that you're aware of right now, what you're currently thinking about in your head that you identify as, as your own thoughts, whereas your subconscious mind is all the mental processing that's going on below your level of conscious awareness. So this includes, for example, your body regulating your autonomic functions, such as your breathing and your heartbeat. It also includes your memories that you're not consciously thinking about right now. Those are stored somewhere below the level of consciousness. One of the reasons you might want to access your subconscious brain or your subconscious mind is that you can gain many benefits from the strengths of your subconscious mind that you cannot gain as easily from your conscious mind. And there's three key benefits that I'd like to go over with you right now. And then we're going to go later in this program into methods of how to communicate with your subconscious mind, how to pull this information up to the level of conscious awareness so that you can act on it. So the first benefit is problem solving. Your subconscious mind has access to far more information than you can think of consciously. Let me give you an example. How many memories can you consciously think of right now? Can you think about one memory? Sure. Can you think of two memories at the same time? Maybe. But can you think of 10 or 20 or 100 or 1,000? Not very likely. However, your subconscious mind has the ability to access all these different memories simultaneously, whereas you cannot do this consciously. So in terms of problem solving, if you want to solve a problem consciously, you must do so in a fairly linear fashion. You have to load up a very small amount of data into your conscious mind and be able to think about it and access it. And even if you completely immerse yourself in a problem in trying to solve it consciously, there's still a limit as to how much you can fit in your consciousness. It's like you only have a certain amount of mental RAM in terms of computer analogy of random access memory. You only have a certain amount of that that RAM in your head that you can load up and do your current conscious thinking with. However, subconsciously, you have a much larger amount of storage space with which you can work. And later in the program, I'm going to teach you how to create an interface to that subconscious part of your mind such that you can use it to solve problems. So clearly, if you could access the vast reserve of knowledge you have in your subconscious mind, even though you're not aware of how it's working, of how that type of mental processing is, is occurring, if you could access the parts of your brain and get your whole brain invested in solving a problem, not just your conscious mind, but your subconscious as well, you would have far more mental computing capacity to apply to solving problems. The second benefit for consulting your subconscious information or accessing your intuition is self-understanding. You can pull out what you intuitively know to be true and to become consciously aware of it. Have you ever had a situation, for example, where you seem to be behaving in a manner which you just didn't understand? 
You might have asked yourself, why am I behaving like this? Why am I acting like this? Well, using a process which I'll tell you later in this program, you can gain access to your subconscious understanding and pull it into your conscious mind. You'll often find that while consciously you do not understand why you're behaving a certain way or why you're thinking a certain way, subconsciously there's often a reason that makes a great deal of sense. However, most of us don't know how to interface with our subconscious minds in such a way that the communication makes sense to us consciously. So we see behavior and we consciously think, why am I doing that? That's a bad habit. Why don't I stop? But on the subconscious level, well, your subconscious mind has a lot more information available to it that it can access simultaneously. It begins to make sense. So think of your subconscious mind as, say, having an IQ that's much, much greater than your conscious mind. And sometimes we simply don't respect how much more information our subconscious mind has available to it and how much information it's using to make its decisions in controlling our behavior. And much of our behavior is controlled subconsciously. We don't always consciously think of what we're going to do and then act. Oftentimes our actions are automatic or we have a compulsion to do something, especially in the form of habits. And so by developing a better interface to your subconscious mind and you pull this behavior into a conscious level of understanding, now we understand the behavior, and now we can start to change it in a way that makes sense. Otherwise, if we try to make changes before we fully understand why we're already behaving this way, then our changes may very well be ineffective. The third benefit to learning to consult with your subconscious mind is consistency, is getting your actions and your thinking to be in agreement. This is a step beyond self-understanding. Now, you're understanding, you're listening to your subconscious mind. You're listening to why your behavior is a certain way, and now you're working to change it. But whereas most people try to make a change in terms of saying, here's what I want consciously, and they command their subconscious mind to do it. And there are ways you can do that by setting goals, by visualizing what your outcome. And sometimes that works, but sometimes it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, often it's because consciously you do not understand the problem or the goal that you're trying to achieve to the same degree that your subconscious mind understands it. And if you could respect and get to know your subconscious level of understanding of the problem, you might realize why it's blocking you from applying your, your current solution. Oftentimes your subconscious mind will block you from applying a current solution that you think consciously is the best one for you because it realizes it's not the best approach. It realizes that there's a better way of achieving your goal. Or maybe it sees that your goal is malformed to begin with, that you shouldn't be setting this goal to begin with. And so it blocks you from trying to achieve it. So these three benefits, problem solving, self-understanding, and consistency between your actions and your thoughts are three very crucial benefits to why you might want to develop the ability to consult your intuition and to access your subconscious level of thinking. So now let's move into how to do this. How can we actually communicate more deeply with our subconscious mind and get access to that much wider capacity for thinking, that more holistic form of thought? The first method I'll give you, and I'll give you two methods here, is what you might think of as a journaling method. And I do this in my journal, so that's why I think of it as a journaling method, but you could just think of it as a simple writing method. And it's very, very simple, but it will take a bit of practice 
until you can develop skill and confidence with it. All you do is you take a piece of paper, or if you keep a computer journal or you want to type this up in a computer document, that's fine too, and you write questions, you type up a question, or you type up a, a request for information, and then you simply sort of relax and type whatever comes to mind, the first thing that comes to mind. Type or write it. So for example, let's say you want to increase your income. So you might start with some questions of self-understanding. I highly recommend the best approach is to understand where you are right now. And then once you have that level of understanding that comes from your subconscious, then you can start to work to negotiate with your subconscious on how to make a change that you might want to make. Ultimately, your conscious mind is the one in control. But your subconscious is, in a sense, smarter in that it has access to more information. However, it doesn't have its own independent will. It will follow the will of your conscious mind, but it will also object, sometimes violently so, when it believes what you're doing is not in your best interest, when it believes it's getting conflicting signals from your conscious mind. So when using this approach, you might start with a, a question or a request that says, explain to me why I'm at my current level or explain to me why I'm experiencing my current financial situation as I am right now. And then just type what comes to mind and just listen to that inner voice. Try to just relax. And what I find helps most is to focus on the intention to hear the truth, not to hear an answer that you want to hear. That will generally block the results from coming through very clearly. So what you're really doing is you're, you're, using your conscious mind to pose a question to your subconscious and letting that answer flow up from your subconscious mind into your consciousness. You might hear it in the form of words in your head, but usually what happens when I do it is I get it in the form of thoughts, which are not fully verbalized. And then what I have to do consciously is take those thoughts and turn them into words as I type. So sometimes I struggle over the exact words to type because the information comes up sometimes as mere thoughts like ag abstract concepts. It comes up as images. It comes up as impulses, sometimes even sounds. But do your best to consciously translate those signals that are coming into your consciousness just by listening and type them out in, as, as text. And then once you feel you've exhausted the flow of information you're getting, and some, for some answers you might type a sentence. Some I find I'll type two pages because I just have more and more information coming to me. Then move on to the next question. And you might ask other questions of understanding, of further understanding. For example, you might ask clarification questions. If you get an answer back and it doesn't seem to make sense to you, you might say, please clarify. So imagine that you're treating your subconscious mind almost as someone you're interviewing. So you're posing questions to your subconscious and it's coming back to your conscious mind. Now, I find that it usually takes me a good 15 minutes of using this approach before I really feel I'm getting a good flow of information. Oftentimes, the first few questions I ask and the first 15 minutes of writing, it feels like I'm just typing gibberish or I'm typing garbage or it doesn't really seem like the answers make, the, uh, make a lot of sense. But after doing this about 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, then suddenly I feel as if now I've got a connection going. Now, I've, now I'm really starting to get good information. And 
once you get that level of self-understanding where you feel you really understand the situation you're dealing with, then you can start negotiating a change. I don't use this method to demand a change. I start using it to negotiate a change. So for example, once you understand your financial situation, you might say to your subconscious mind, say, okay, here's what I want. I would like to double my income over the next year. Can you show me how to do that? And let the information flow to you again and see what answer comes to you. I find that often the information I get from this is extremely valuable and far more so than what I can think about consciously. The conscious plans I get, while often they, they look really good on paper, sometimes they don't work. Whereas the subconscious information I get sometimes doesn't look good to me consciously. However, it often is extremely effective when I try to apply it. It's as if my subconscious mind knows something that my conscious mind doesn't. It has access to more information, and often its solutions are more intelligent. So part of this process also, as you negotiate with your subconscious mind, is to ask for enough clarifications such that you do understand it consciously and that you do see that it will work. See, I'm not a believer in following your intuition blindly. This is not a process where you simply ask your intuition, consult your intuition and then blindly follow its advice. It's a process where you can bring your intuitive or your subconscious understanding into your consciousness where you can then understand it better. And then you can align your conscious thinking with your subconscious knowing and implement a solution to one of your problems or set a goal and make a plan to achieve that goal such that you not only believe in it consciously, but subconsciously you also feel it's correct. And when you do that, you're far more likely to achieve success. Because now, all parts of your mind, all parts of your brain are on the same page. So the journaling method, I sometimes get into a groove where I'll do it for three or four hours straight without stopping. It's, it's as if I have sort of a connection and I just don't want to break it. You get in this flow of information coming. And sometimes it's just amazing to hear what, or to read what you're typing. You'd be surprised just the things that come out of your mind. Let's move on to the second method now. The second method is very similar to the first one, except it's done entirely in your mind instead of using pen and paper. And this is a visualization method. So what you do is the same process of asking questions and listening for the answers. But in this case, instead of trying to translate the answer into words, you keep it in, in the form of images. So you ask a question, and it could be the same one, like, show me what my current financial situation is right now. And you close your eyes if you find it easier to visualize with your eyes closed. Otherwise, keep your eyes open if you find it easier to visualize with your eyes open. And listen for an answer, but listen for it in your imagination, almost like you're daydreaming. And let an image pop into your mind. And then just listen to that image in the sense that you pay attention to the image, you focus on it, and let the image do what it wants to do. Usually I find when I get an image, it will start to become animated and something will happen. It's like a scene will play out in my head. Sometimes the scene may take only five seconds. Other times it's maybe a minute long where it's a whole series of animations. And what will happen is the scene may be just some random images. Like you may see a bird flying through the sky, through the clouds, landing on the ground and so on. So don't try to interpret the images at this point. Just let it come to you and the images may not mean anything to you at this point. That is perfectly fine. Once you feel that whatever images have come to you have played themselves out, in other words, you've probably seen some kind of animation and it's played itself out in your head, then once you have that sequence in your head fairly clearly, and you can review it as much as you want, backwards or forwards, 
until you feel you have it locked into your into your conscious mind. Then go back over it, and now you go through a process of interpreting these images. And what you do here is you simply ask for each part, for each object you can identify in your vision. You ask your subconscious mind. You say, what does this represent? And wait for a word to come to mind. And the first word that pops into your head, that's the one you go with. So for example, if you see a bird flying through the sky in your image, then you would ask your, after you've done, after you're done with the image and it's played itself out, you might ask yourself, what does the bird represent? And then you hear an answer back, you. So the bird is you. And then maybe you see the bird flying through clouds. And then you ask, so you ask, what, what do the clouds represent? And the answer that comes back may be, well, the clouds are other people. And then you might see the bird land on the ground. And then the, you ask a question, what does the ground represent? And so on. Now, once you have the interpretation of these different images, and you know what, the, what all the nouns in your scene represent, now you interpret the scene by going back over the, the visual elements of the scene and seeing what those nouns are doing. Except now, instead of using that original object in the scene, you substitute its interpretation. So as a simple example of how this type of visualization worked for me on trying to solve a problem, I asked a question, I asked a question of, show me how my thinking is in a certain area of my life. And the image that I got was of a sun moving behind clouds. And when I asked my subconscious mind, what does the sun represent? The answer I got back was me, that the sun represented me. When I asked it what the clouds represented, then the answer I got back was that the clouds were my thinking. So what it, what it was really saying is that my, my thinking was becoming cloudy. I was moving behind these clouds. So you'll see that there's a symbolic interpretation to the images that you, that, you get, that you receive. And what the images are doing, the verbs that you would use to describe what they're doing, will often be very interesting when you hear them when you hear yourself saying them out loud. You might even choose to go a step further and write them down. Sometimes I, I do that, especially when I was first learning this process. I would often write down what I was seeing so that I could review the words I was writing. For example, if you visualize a bird and you see the bird coming and landing on the ground, you might interpret that as coming down to earth. In other words, becoming more grounded in your thinking is one possibility. So in using this, this method of asking questions, and then waiting for a visual answer, letting a scene play out in your head, identifying the objects in the scene, interpreting those objects, again by asking your subconscious mind what they represent, and then plugging those interpretations back into the scene and seeing what they're doing, now you get a complete answer. I realize this, this may sound a little complicated, but in practice, it's actually very fast. Sometimes you can go through the whole process in less than a minute once you get practice with it. So here you have two different methods. You have the journaling method or the writing method where you're communicating with your subconscious mind. You're asking questions and letting the answers come to you in the form of words which you write down. And the second method is the visualization method where you, again, pose a question in your head to your subconscious mind instead of writing it down on a piece of paper. And you let the answer come to you in the form of images which you then interpret. My current favorite is the second method. But I started out with the first method and was using that for many, many years before I eventually switched to the visualization method. The one thing I like about the visualization method is that you can do the, the whole thing in your head. You don't even need a pen and paper once you get used to it. And you could, so you can go through a, a lot of questions very quickly. 
what may take three or four hours with the journal method could be done in maybe 20, 30 minutes with the visualization method. So you can get these realizations coming to you much more quickly and communicating from your subconscious mind to your conscious mind. Now again, the ways in which you can apply these two methods are you can use them to solve problems. You can pose a question of, show me how to solve this particular problem. You can use it for self-understanding, which I think is one of the most powerful ways. You can get a better understanding of your behavior. For example, you can pose the question, show me why I'm procrastinating on this particular area of my life. You can also use it to get consistency between your thinking and your actions. So you can, that's a process of negotiation again, where you get information for your subconscious mind and you begin to understand why you're behaving a certain way. Once you do, then you can begin to suggest changes and negotiate with your subconscious mind, of show, to asking it to show you how to make this change in a way that it feels is intelligent. So my challenge to you is to pick one of these two methods and sometime during the next week, use it to try to either solve a problem to gain a higher level of, of self-understanding or to get more consistency between your action and your thinking in some area of your life. But try to use one of these methods just once during the next week. And again, these are methods that take a bit of practice to work. So if your results the first time seem a little bit foggy and not quite as clear, realize that with practice, your results will become much better. You'll get clearer answers. You'll get better information back. And again, the real goal here is to create a bridge between your conscious mind and your subconscious mind so that you can access that reserve of information and knowledge that's stored below your level of consciousness, pull it up into your conscious mind, where you can use it to make better decisions. So take on this challenge, and until next time, live consciously. SteviePavlina.com, Personal Development for Smart People, podcast number five for Friday, October 21st, 2005. In this podcast, I want to talk with you about the subject of beliefs. So the first thing I want you to do is picture a goal that you have for yourself. Maybe it's a goal to lose a certain amount of weight, to earn a certain amount of money, to complete a particular project, whatever your goal is. Just get one in mind. Now I want to ask you, what do you honestly believe it will take for you to achieve this goal? Now, if this is a goal you've already planned out, then that should be easy to answer. You would have your plan as the answer to that question. But perhaps it's something, something like, oh, your goal is you want to lose weight. And so what you believe it would take to achieve that goal is, well, I'm going to have to change my diet. I'm going to have to exercise a lot more. And then if I can change my diet and adopt a new exercise program and maintain a consistent level of discipline for a period of months, then it will work. Then I would reach my goal weight. So that might be what your, what your thinking is on what you believe it will take to achieve that goal. And if you honestly do what you believe it will take to achieve your goal, you will probably succeed. But what I want to address is those situations where you look at what you believe it will take to achieve your goal, and it appears overwhelming initially, so you don't do it. It looks like it's going to be just too much work. The first method we've talked about for achieving your goal is working within a certain belief system. In other words, you have these beliefs about what it will take to achieve your goal. Now, that's not necessarily the same thing of what it will objectively take to achieve your goal. Your plan is not reality. Your plan is your thinking about reality. It's your mental model of reality. But that doesn't necessarily mean your plan is the only way to achieve your goal. 
or even that your plan will work. But working your plan, following the steps of your plan to your goal, whether it's a clearly documented plan or just kind of a basic idea of the steps you, you think you'll need to take, working that plan is working within that belief system, the belief system that led to the creation of that plan. In other words, it's working within your beliefs, what you believe it will take to achieve that goal. Now, that's a very common method of goal achievement. If you make a plan based on what you believe it will take to achieve the goal, you think you're creating a plan based on some objective model of reality, but you're really not because you never know objective reality totally perfectly. There's always imperfections in your understanding of it. So what you're really doing is you're creating a plan based on your mental model. What I want to do is offer you an alternative way of achieving goals. The first method we talked about is working within your belief system. The second method I want to introduce you to is working on your belief system itself. So what this means is instead of accepting your current mental model of reality and then setting goals within that model of reality and then using that, that mental model of reality to create the plans to achieve your goals, what we want to do is take a step back and look at that mental model that you have and say, can we work on this model itself to make the goal easier to achieve? Does this make sense? So let's use that weight loss model again. And, and in this case, you would say, I want to lose weight. So now, instead of working within your belief system about what it will take to lose weight, you're going to work on your belief system. So what you really want to do here is to condition yourself to believe that you will reach your goal weight. And you don't even need to be concerned with how it happens because that's working inside the belief system. In this case, you're working on the belief system, so you want to install the belief that you will most definitely lose weight and reach the goal weight you have set for yourself. Now, the way that this could work is that what it might do is it installs a new belief system in yourself. And my experience has shown me time and again that there appears to be some type of process in ourselves that will tend to make reality, or at least our experience of reality, congruent with our beliefs. In other words, our mental model of reality is not merely our best guess observation of reality. It's actually our best guess creation of reality as well. It is an observation on one hand, but our mental model of reality is also creating our experiences. It's creating the path to our goals. It's creating how much success or failure we experience. And because of that creative aspect of our mental model of reality, we need to take a greater degree of control over what it is we're actually creating. So I think very few people realize that when you have a belief, that is a creative entity. Your belief about reality is not merely measuring reality and giving you feedback on reality. It is actually actively creating. And there's two mechanisms by which that can occur. The first is through subconscious action. If you create a belief, for example, that you're going to lose weight and you are absolutely certain you're going to lose weight, don't you think that that could potentially have an effect on your behavior that could lead you to take the correct actions that will eventually cause you to lose weight? In fact, it might be far more easy to do it that way than it would be to struggle against your belief system and fight with your beliefs because in your belief system, the original one we, we talked about where you decide you need to have this restrictive diet and do lots of exercise and maintain a certain level of self-discipline, what you're doing is you're really fighting your beliefs 
about reality, your beliefs that say it's hard to lose weight. And so you're trying to come up against that belief and fight with it. Instead, what I'm suggesting is an alternative approach is to recondition that belief to get yourself to believe it's going to be easier to lose weight, to get yourself to believe that you will succeed, thereby conditioning your subconscious mind to take the correct actions so that when you're thinking about what to eat, and you'll find that when you think about what to eat, rarely do you have a totally conscious choice there. You're often just getting a subconscious craving, and you go and eat what, you f what pops into your head. But what if healthier foods started popping into your head because you had an underlying belief that you were going to succeed? Let's take a step back and consider how do you actually change these beliefs? Well, first of all, realize that beliefs are choices. And you can make these choices subconsciously or consciously. And thinking that you don't have the power to change your beliefs is actually itself a belief, if you think about it. It's one that keeps you trapped. Your belief that your mental model of reality is accurate is actually part of your mental model of reality. And in fact, it's a creative part, not just a passive observing part. So the first door you have to go through in order to be able to use this, this other method of goal achievement, is to consciously decide to drop those beliefs that unnecessarily limit your options. And the beliefs that unnecessarily limit your options would be called disempowering beliefs. And the ones that free you up and give you more options would be called empowering beliefs. And empowering beliefs are simply more congruent with the way reality actually works. And that greater congruency comes from recognizing that your mental model of reality has a creative effect on your experience of reality. It is not merely passive. It is also active. Now, the one, the one method I already mentioned was the subconscious process, whereby your beliefs about reality are programming your subconscious, and through your subconscious actions, you're creating results one way or another, which may be congruent with your mental model of reality or incongruent with your mental model of reality. And in the long run, we're going to strive whether we like it or not, for congruency with our mental model of reality. We'll strive for congruency with our beliefs. The second mechanism, though, where I can see this working, and this is an area I'm just beginning to explore more deeply, is the possibility of superconscious action. What this means is that somehow, some way, through some mechanism, your beliefs and your thoughts about reality are going out into the universe and extending beyond your own subconscious mind, beyond your body, and they're impacting the world in some way. And we can conjecture about how this might happen, but one of the best ways to do it is simply to test and to, to see for yourself that there may be something more to your beliefs about reality in the way they manifest that goes beyond your ability to, to explain it as merely subconscious action. As an example, when you set a goal for yourself and you are convinced that it's going to happen. You adopt a new belief. You change your mental model of reality. You may start to see synchronicities occur. You may start to see strange coincidences within the next, say, one to two days after making this change for yourself in your mind. You start to see coincidences in your reality. Now, there is certainly the possibility that that's subconscious, that there are things there all along that you begin to notice. However, I would suggest that if you if you actually adopt the belief that there is the possibility of a superconscious action at work, you will in fact open yourself up more to receiving superconscious help, to receiving more synchronicities and more coincidences. And in fact, I found that the more I 
relaxed into that belief and said, I wonder if there is superconscious action. I wonder if there is a way for my beliefs to manifest that goes beyond my conscious ability to take direct action or my subconscious ability to take indirect action. And somehow my thoughts are affecting reality in some way. And the more I did that, the more I saw evidence that that was true. Now, on the one hand, you could say this is simply a self-fulfilling prophecy, that yes, maybe I'm just convincing myself that that's true. And that may be the case. I have no way, real way of disputing that. But on the other hand, what if it works? If it works, it works. Does it necessarily matter if you're slightly deluding yourself into believing that your goals are being manifest through superconscious action when really they're just being manifest even more deeply through subconscious action that you're not aware of, but yet you're still getting results? So the thing is, is that this may be an empowering belief whether or not it is objectively or provably true. I can't see a way it could be proven either true or false. But I found that simply to believe in it, simply to open myself up to it, and you don't have to necessarily blindly jump in with faith and, ex and accept that it's true. What I'm suggesting, though, is that you simply open yourself up to the possibility of it. You allow it to be possible. And what this will do is open yourself up to other ways of achieving your goals that may be much easier than taking direct action within your current belief system. And everyone's belief systems have some degree of conflict. They're, they're incongruent. They may be internally incongruent, or they may be simply incongruent with reality. So allowing yourself the flexibility of bypassing those incongruencies can sometimes allow goals to manifest far more easily, far more quickly, through a, a process of bypassing the blocks, bypassing those beliefs that would prevent your goals from coming to you easily. For example, with the weight loss goal, bypassing all that hard work, that conscious effort, because you have beliefs that are slightly in conflict. You believe you want to lose weight, but you also believe it's going to be very difficult to do. Or you want to make a certain amount of money, but you believe you would have to do something unethical to make that much money, or you would, that it would be very difficult, or that you'd have to make too many sacrifices. So to get those blocks out of the way is something that can be achieved by opening yourself up to the potential for both subconscious and superconscious action. So how do you actually do this? Well, the way you actually do this is to, to choose a belief is essentially to hold an intention. To, what you're doing is you're creating an intention. Now, many people know how to use intentions in very limited ways, such as intending to go to work or intending to take out the trash. But intentions can be much more powerful than that. You can create intentions that are much more broad, such as, I intend to weigh a certain number of pounds, as we already mentioned, or I intend to attract a mate, or simply, I intend to be happy, or I intend to feel good, or I intend to be at peace. And when you hold these intentions long enough, they'll eventually become beliefs. And for one, this will affect your subconscious actions, so you'll be acting congruently with you want, but then we also talked about the possibility for synchronicities to occur through superconscious action. Whether or not that is actually what's happening, I don't know. But I do believe that you will begin to see these effects for yourself if you open yourself up to them. I suggest that you experiment with this ability and see how far you can develop it. At the very least, it will help you bypass those disempowering beliefs that are holding you back. And at best, it can help you manifest your goals much more quickly. Really what we're talking about here is becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm sure you've heard that expression before, saying that someone is a self-fulfilling prophecy 
means that they have beliefs that they're going to manifest one way or the other. Well, why not use that process to your advantage? Adopt the beliefs such that you become a self-fulfilling prophecy for what you want. So prophesize what you want to happen. And the way you do this is actually very simple because you simply need to recognize that is it is a choice. When you realize that your mental model of reality is at least in part creative of your reality, then you have the potential to make choices that are creative, to install beliefs simply because you have that ability to create. For example, let's say you want to go make dinner for yourself. Okay, you don't need some special permission to be able to do this. It's simply you decide to make dinner, you decide what you want to create, you decide what you want to have, and you go do it. You just say, I'm going to have this for dinner, and you make it so. It's the same process with beliefs, except that people tend to make it so much more complicated. They think that they don't have this ability to do this when they really do. So you simply say, you state your goal, you state it to the universe, and you simply say, make it so. Simply say, I believe I'm going to lose weight, and I believe I'm going to weigh this much weight, or I believe I'm going to make a certain amount of money, or I believe I'm going to attract a mate into my life. And you tell the universe, make it so. So what you're really doing here, the process you're really doing here, is you're changing your mental model of reality by choice, by conscious choice. And of course, you have to recognize that you have this ability, that you can do this. So if you can overcome your resistance to this process and simply try it with an open mind, I think you'll find it's a really incredible way for ach- to achieve goals. And note that it actually doesn't conflict with the first method we talked about for achieving goals, the one where you work within your belief system. Really what you want to do is apply both. You want to both work within your belief system, but also work on the belief system. So my exercise to you is to select a goal that's important to you, something that's specific, and relax your beliefs about what it will take to achieve that goal. And then use this model of intention to attract the goal to you, to work on your beliefs about what it will take to achieve the goal. What you want to do is install the belief by choice, simply by choosing, that you will achieve the goal. And that you will achieve the goal quickly and easily. Don't give it a specific deadline. Don't force it to come to you in any particular way. Don't try to control the process of how the goal is achieved. Simply Intend the goal you want and allow the process to unfold however the universe sees best. That gives you the option of working on it with direct action. That gives you the option of manifesting it subway through subconscious action. And also there's the possibility of superconscious action if you happen to believe in that. So try this, try this intention manifestation model for achieving your goals to work on your belief system, not just within it. And until next time, live consciously. Coming up on segment two, you're going to hear what every franchisepreneur needs to know before buying a franchise. We're going to play a clip from our popular Great Quotes in Franchising podcast right here on Franchise Interviews. Are you looking for a franchise that delivers? Businesses will always need shipping, and for more than 25 years, loyal customers have depended on Unishippers for reliable savings and exceptional customer service. Unishippers is focused on just one thing, helping small and medium-sized businesses save time and money on all their shipping needs. And as the largest reseller of complete shipping services in the country, we have the buying power to ensure that we succeed. 
the Unishippers franchise offers low startup costs, no equipment or real estate required because they're not retail, residual income, and a quality of life and work-life balance. For more information on becoming a Unishippers franchisee, go to www.unishippers.com and click Franchise Opportunities or call Franchise Development at 801-708-5822. That's 801-708-5822. Franchisers, are you looking to reach aspiring entrepreneurs looking to buy a franchise? Are you looking to reach a highly educated audience on franchising? For over eight years, Franchise Interviews has been giving an up-close, behind-the-scenes look at franchising and entrepreneurship through our website, FranchiseInterviews.com, where you can hear and read interviews as well as get tips from some of the most successful sources in franchising. Our weekly franchise radio show where each week you get to hear a new interview with franchisers, franchisees, franchise authors, franchise experts, and attorneys, and our podcast, Great Quotes in Franchising. For more information, go to FranchiseInterviews.com or call us at 610-905-2919. That's 610-905-2919. Hi, everyone. This is Marty McDermott from Franchise Interviews, and welcome to another edition of Great Quotes in Franchising, where each podcast you get to hear a great quote in franchising. You know, we've been hosting franchise interviews many years now. We've had some incredible guests on the show. Today you're going to get to hear from Todd Leff, and Todd is the CEO and president of a franchise called Hand in Stone, and Todd has many, many years' experience, and we always like to ask the veterans in franchising, what is your advice to our listeners as far as their quest to buy a franchise? And I thought Todd's response was quite brilliant. He narrowed it down to three questions you should ask, and we're going to hear that right now. Spending significant time out there, you know, really marketing the business, and that's that's where they can add value, um, you know, to growing the business. So you've been doing this such a long time. One of the questions I was excited to ask you is, is, what advice would you give to our listeners on buying a franchise, Todd? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I I I'll uh, I will give you my three questions that I tell every <laughs> new prospect. These okay. are the three questions you should answer in looking at any franchise. One is, do you believe in the long-term growth of the industry? Because yeah. it's very hard in an industry that's flat or declining to claw away market share from other established competitors. So I, me personally, I was looking for an industry that had long-term growth potential. Number two, do you believe in the underlying business model of that franchise? Because you can have a great industry and and have a business model that doesn't work. So you you have to get into the, you know, building a pro forma, looking at what the potential revenue is and what that would produce. And then the third question I I tell people to ask is, you know, can you see yourself fitting culturally with the organization, whether that's the management team that you'll be working with at the franchise, the people you'd be working with in the business, and the other franchisees in the system. Do you see yourself being able to get along and work with those groups and, and have confidence that these people can, can lead a brand forward? So and I think if you can answer all three of those questions yes, then, then you really have something that you ought, to, you ought to investigate carefully and proceed with. Wow, that's well said. We're going to have to – we have a, what's called a great quote in franchising. I think we're going to have to put that in there. I, I think that's, that's fantastic.
franchise interviews. From Easton, Pennsylvania to Sydney, Australia, you're listening to Franchise Interviews. Franchise Interviews.